If you could create one powerful change at work, what would it be? Would you change the way oncologists view your role and develop a successful head and neck cancer program for patients before, during, and after their treatment? Maybe you would change the way your clinical director values your services and gets them to approve funding for tools and continuing education the same way they fund PT and OT. Or maybe you would change the way oral care and thickened liquids are managed at your facility and be the reason behind reducing rates of aspiration pneumonia thanks to the protocols you implement. Whatever the change may be, I have good news. You can make it happen in the next six months. You're invited to join the Changemakers Collective, a strategic mentorship program starting this June. I'm looking for medical SLPs who want to make some serious change at work or in their community, the kind of change that has a ripple effect. Throughout the six-month program, you'll develop a tangible goal and receive step-by-step guidance to achieve that goal. Don't have a specific goal in mind yet, but know that something needs to change. Our mentors can help you iron out the details. This includes 18 group mentor calls for advanced ASHA CEUs, templates, a private community, and high-touch support for high-level goals. Go to www.medslpcollective.com forward slash changemakers to learn more. Again, that's www.medslpcollective.com forward slash changemakers. Teresa Yao is a senior speech language pathologist at Stanford Healthcare and an adjunct professor at San Jose State University. She holds a bachelor's degree in advertising, a master's degree in higher education, and a second master's degree in speech language pathology and a clinical doctorate degree in speech language pathology as well. Her clinical and research interests include head and neck cancer rehabilitation, voice disorders, dysphagia, and aphasia. She co-founded the Bay Area Swallowing Support Group and currently serves on the ASHA Special Interest Group 13 Professional Development Committee and the Executive Board of the Asian Pacific Islander Speech Language Hearing Caucus. She has always been a strong advocate for her patients and profession. She loves hiking and traveling. She enjoys spending her free time mentoring students and volunteering in community groups for people who need communication and swallowing support. Welcome to the Swallow Your Pride podcast. I'm your host, Teresa Richard. I'm a board-certified specialist in swallowing and swallowing disorders and founder of the MetaSLP Collective and MetaSLP Education. This podcast is dedicated to delivering the latest evidence-based practice to medical SLPs everywhere, while also recognizing that medical SLPs everywhere are doing the best with what they've got. Whether you are a new clinician seeking tangible tools for therapy or a seasoned vet stuck in a rut, my goal is simple, to help you advance your practice without feeling overwhelmed or underappreciated. This means that together we'll build confidence, broaden your knowledge, and reignite your passion for our field. So if you're listening, I encourage you to swallow your pride and be open to new ideas because at the end of the day, you and your patients deserve that kind of support. With that, let's dive in. Just a quick disclaimer that all statements and opinions expressed in this episode do not reflect on the organizations associated with the speakers and are their own opinions solely. Good afternoon, Teresa. Hi, Teresa. It's weird that we have the same name, but yeah. I know. I'm glad to be here. Thank you for inviting me. Yes, thank you so much for joining me. All right. Tell the people a little bit about yourself. Okay. My name is Teresa Yao. I am a speech pathologist at Stanford Healthcare in Palo Alto, uh, California. And I work in an outpatient head neck cancer clinic. I treat primarily head neck cancer patients uh, for their dysphagia and also voice disorders. 
And uh, before that, I also worked in the outpatient ENT clinic and also inpatient acute care, long-term acute care, and also skilled nursing facilities. But I always know that I wanted to focus on uh, voice and swallowing disorders. And throughout my clinical and research journey, I realized that head neck cancer is definitely uh, my favorite area. Yeah, that's a little bit about me. Yeah, yeah, I love it. All right. Talk a little bit about how did you end up where you are? Great question. So yeah, I grew up in China and it's interesting that I actually never heard of speech pathology until a few years after I graduated from my college. Um, so I was in Hong Kong and I finished my bachelor's degree in advertising because I thought that Oh, I love design. I love photography and I love video editing stuff. So, but soon after I graduate, I, I worked a little bit in different companies. I worked um, in Singapore and then just, I didn't really feel like I like the advertising industry because it's just too commercial or, you know, the business stuff that just make me feel like I don't have much person to person interaction. So I figured that it's not for me and I decided to switch. So I uh, went back to Hong Kong and then I started a job at the university doing admission. And I just feel like uh, it, it's really good to have like the interaction with people as doing the, that job. But then the team was not very just happy with the management. So everyone just left. And then at that time I was like, oh, I didn't want to move. I didn't want to leave the university. Um, and then I just decided to look for jobs just within the university. And then I found a research coordinator job uh, at the voice and swallowing lab in the University of Hong Kong. So I didn't know anything about voice and swallowing at that time. And I never heard of speech pathology, but I just decided to, you know, try it out because I just thought, you know, I, I love singing. I, I know, you know, voice and I love eating. And so those are the things that I think, oh, maybe I should try it out. Got the job and then I started help with research and different projects. Most of the research are in like voice uh, disorders and then some research in swallowing and then helping with, we have a lot of nasopharyngeal cancer patients there and in Hong Kong. So I just found my passion. I feel like it's so, so cool to work with people and then help with voice and swallowing areas. So then I decided, okay, uh, I wanted to get more training. I decided to move to the U.S. for the clinical training here. I started the program knowing that I really wanted to do voice and swallowing and then also like research uh, because that's what I did back in Hong Kong. So, yeah, so I, I just started to looking for research opportunities when I was in grad school and I had great opportunities, volunteer with different professors. One of the professor or great mentor, Heather Stommer. She is also now my current colleague. So she offered me a lot of volunteer and research opportunities to work with head and neck cancer patients. So that just that definitely led the path to head and neck cancer care for me. And then I never looked back. So that's how I ended up here. And then after I graduated, I worked in different settings a little bit. And once there was the opening at um, Stanford head and neck cancer team, I decided, okay, I definitely wanted to apply. And then I became part of the team. That's how I, yeah, I'm now here at Stanford treating head and neck cancer patients. Awesome. Awesome. I love, I love that story, Teresa. Thank you so much for sharing that with us. What are we going to talk about today? I'm really excited to dive into this topic because I think it's something that we don't give enough justice to. I think, you know, we as SLPs do such a good job of diving into the research and what's the best exercise protocol and what's, what do we need to do for this patient that's sitting in front of us today? And, and, you know, that's really been our huge focus, which is is great. It's wonderful. It's excellent. But there's really so much more that goes into 
patient outcomes and patient success. And, and I just, I heard you talk a little bit at ASHA about this. And that's where this, this podcast stemmed from was I heard Teresa's talk at ASHA. And I was like, okay, we've got to do a podcast about this because I think it's just a bigger message that needs to get out there. Yeah, definitely. So yeah, I really wanted to talk about how we can better support our patients with dysphagia. And not just like head and neck cancer patient, but like any patients with dysphagia. Like you said, I think we should look at this from a different angle because most of the time we look at dysphagia, we look at the from the impairment angle, focusing on assessment, treatment with like specific physiological uh, deficit. Those are good, but it's, I think it's not enough. So we just wanted to support our patients in some different ways. So that's why I wanted to talk a little bit, just this uh, whole person approach to dysphagia. This is actually the talk that me and my colleague, uh, Jocelyn Hamilton from uh, Stanford, we talked about this topic last year at ASHA and then also this year. So it's really just a focus of a whole person in different domains. But before I start this, just go into detail of this model, I also wanted to share a quote from a colleague that I heard earlier this year. I really like it. It was from uh, Dr. Justin Rowe from UK, and he uh, gave a talk at our head neck cancer patient ed education symposium earlier this year. He mentioned patients are people before they are patients. It's just so true because we don't just treat the patients uh, just in the different way because they're patients, because we know that they're regular people. They're someone's family member. They're someone's children. They're someone's spouse. Um, they're someone's mom and dad. So we should look at a patient as a whole person. I think that's just basically talk about this like approach that we should use, we should implement in our clinical practice. Because, yeah, you don't just see the patient as a patient. They are a person there. Right. And I don't know if you uh, know a lot about the aphasia approach, the life participation approach to aphasia. Have you probably heard about that before? Right. Yep. Yeah. So actually, we did a podcast just recently also on this topic for this um, aphasia uh, access podcast, just talking about this uh, whole idea. So basically, it is this concept is from the World Health Organization's ICF model. I think probably everyone knows uh, well about this model. So besides the body function and impairment, we also have um, other domains that we need to take into consideration. And that include the environment and the participation and then also the patient's uh, factor, uh, patient's like personal factor. So these kind of like, if you remember, there's like a Venn diagram um, that, you know, patients in the center and then there's uh, body function or impairment and there's environment and there's participation. And then also there is personal factor. So that's what we based on the ICF model and also the uh, life participation approach to aphasia so that we come up with this uh, whole person approach. Yeah. I think, you know, it, it just sounds so basic, really. Like, yeah, like, of course we should be doing that. But I, I just can't even express the amount of times that I've been, you know, in situations with my son or just been in clinical situations before where it's just so robotic and where's the humanizing aspect of it, you know, and I know we're all busy. We're, you know, stressed, have too much productivity to hit all, all the things, but 
there's got to be some, at some point, this has to take precedence, right? Like this has to take priority that this approach is the way that we have to treat our patients, that we have to lead with treating our patients. Exactly. And then I also wanted to share another quote from um, this paper from Dr. Threats, and it's about using the ICF model in dysphagia management. And this is so true. So um, we also shared this in our talk before. It says, the meaning, the meanings we attach to eating and drinking and swallowing are connected to our most cherished activities and remind us of the intangibles of human existence, trust, dependence, social worth, and love, and therefore become integral to how we see ourselves as individuals and in relation to others. So it's such a beautiful quote, and just talking about, you know, eating and swallowing, there are also uh, ways for us to communicate. It's just not the impairment itself. Because if you can't eat, if you can't drink well, it impacts you to communicate with others. We know that this holiday season, right? We hang out with families, friends. And, you know, usually what we do is we go out or we gather to eat. And that's the way we social. That's the way we communicate, get connection with other people. So if you have dysphagia, it's really challenging for, for you to, you know, be connected with other people. And also, especially with our head neck cancer patient, because I work mainly with head neck cancer patients. And we know that a lot of our head neck cancer patients, after their treatment, surgery, radiation, they may experience long-term chronic dysphagia, uh, because that's usually from like the radiation associated dysphagia. And it can be like, you know, just for the rest of the life. And then they have to deal with dysphagia for the rest of the life. It's just the same concept as, you know, when people with aphasia, they live with aphasia. And then when people had neck cancer patients who finish their treatment and still have lingering dysphagia, they have to live with dysphagia. So this is the same concept and they just, they can't get rid of it, even though, yeah, we can use treatments to help them improve the function. But why don't we just change our view to just look at, you know, how to help them adapt to the environment, how to address their participation and personal factor so that we can treat them as a whole person and help them to improve their quality of life instead of like try to fix the dysphagia, um, the deficit. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's definitely a meeting in the middle of all aspects, you know, and I think one thing that I really experienced with my son has feeding difficulties. And I think the, the interesting things is that mm-hmm. we've had so many therapists just come to us and tell us what we should do or, or how our meals should look. And I just remember blatantly one SLP that I just was like, this will not work for our family. Like, I know you think this is the best thing, but it's just not part of our family dynamic. And that was like the biggest eye opener for me that, oh my gosh, how many times have I recommended things to patients and just put what I thought was best on them instead of including them and involving them in the conversation and saying, you know, hey, tell me what mealtimes look or how do you want them to look or what is something that you that you miss doing? And, and I just remember one of like the most profound moments was what an SLP just said, you know, what's a really important goal for your family? And I'm just like, I just couldn't think. And I was like, oh my gosh, I don't know. And all of a sudden my husband was like, if we could just go out for pizza together. And like, he just said it so innocently. And I was like, oh my gosh, like that's something that I never thought would be a reality for us. 
you know, and it, and it's sad that that like that as clinicians, we don't think that way, but you know, we're learning and, and we'll get there. So yeah, I, th- I think it's just so important to include the patient right away in the conversation about what is important to them. What does this look like to them instead of us? I don't want to say wasting our time, but sometimes we spend a lot of time on things that aren't really important to them. Exactly. I think that's what happens with a lot of our chronic long-term head and neck cancer patients uh, with dysphagia. So in the session, when they come to see you, probably they already tried all the uh, exercises, all different assessments and, you know, all the tricks that you have, but it just, you still can't change anything. And what you can do is just talk to them, listen to them and ask them, you know, what matters to you? What's your goal? Like, you know, if they wanted to hang out with their family during holidays, you know, eat, eating together, how can we help them to achieve that? Uh, I have patients just very like chronic late radiation associated uh, dysphagia, basically uh, just too dependent. And there's no way that he could eat a meal or, or even like drink anything. But he just said, you know, I wanted to be with my family. I wanted to do something, you know, during the, the those those moments, social uh, gathering. So what he did was just sit there and then, you know, chat with people and then put the food in the mouth and then just kind of like taste a little bit and then just spit it out. And then the family understand the situation. And then he explained to them, you know, this is how I wanted to join you. This is what matters to me, even though I can't eat. I wanted to sit here. I wanted to just, you know, put the food and taste a little bit. And then I I don't need to eat it. I just wanted to be here. And that helps. And then I think sometimes we just have to teach patients to say, you know, this is something probably can't change your dysphagia, but you can find ways to help you engage more in those social situations. And then another thing that we also encourage people is talk to people around you or talk to restaurant or talk to your friends and family. Let them know what is dysphagia, what you've been through. You may cough or you may clear your throat or you may need to like spit things out, but that's the way you are now. And just you really, really educate them so that they can accept this so that you feel comfortable when you're in the social setting. Nobody's looking at you like, oh, that's disgusting or, you know, so I think this is also part of uh, like us as clinicians. We need to raise awareness of dysphagia. We need to like let the community know more about what is dysphagia, how we can do to accommodate this situation. So this is one of the part of the, the domain environment. So how can we make the environment more dysphagia friendly? Because we know that, you know, we try to, as when we're in grad school doing the aphasia group, we wanted to try to make materials to be aphasia friendly. You know, you're not putting like a long uh, sentence uh, with a lot of difficult words, but you're just putting keywords or you are using pictures to help them. And then the same thing for dysphagia, like how can we let the community or restaurant know that, you know, we probably could modify our manual a little bit to make this eating experience better for people with dysphagia or like, you know, just educate people around knowing that, you know, dysphagia is something that's, I really like this term, hidden disability. So it's hidden. So you can't see it when people, when you go out, a lot of our head neck cancer patients, they're still like, you know, working and doing all kinds of things in their life, but it's just the disability inside the hidden disability that you can't see when they go to a restaurant, they feel embarrassed. They don't feel like they are themselves anymore because they can't eat or they can't enjoy the meal. So that's why I think that disability is hidden. We need to help them 
the patients, families to raise awareness, to let the community know this is something that's existing and we can help and we can try to modify the environment to help them. And then at the same time, the patient, we also ask them to, you know, advocate for yourself. Just let people know that this is something that we need help with. That's, you know, the education is really important. Let's talk a little bit more about these other aspects. You know, we've talked about, I've done some podcasts before on support groups, but one thing that you know, I know you're passionate about them too, and I, and I want well, I want to talk about them a little bit more today is I think what's so fascinating about, to me, my experience being a part of some dysphagia support groups is not just getting support in the community, which it is, but it's the ideas that I've heard from other patients with dysphagia that I'm like, oh my gosh, I never would have thought of like, you don't know a lived experience until you live the experience, right? And so I think what's what's fascinating is I just was part of a dialogue and part of an exchange of this one gentleman, like you talk about the hidden disability. He said, I just retreated. I just became so depressed. I never went out anymore because nobody can see it and nobody can understand. And so they just see me not eating and not taking part. And so the other gentleman in the group just chimed in and said, oh, you know, in those situations, I do this, I do this, I do this. And and it was almost just like you could see the man all of a sudden just, he's like, I never thought of that. Like, I didn't realize that was an option. Like, and to me, it was like, like everybody that was there was just so like excited. There was tears because it, it wasn't something that an SLP could come up with, you know, like we can give all the compensatory strategies, we can give all the exercises, but sometimes you just need someone that's been in those shoes to really, truly help you navigate that situation. So exactly. Sorry, I just totally dominated that situation. No, no, no. Yeah, that's great. Because this is, yeah, it's definitely true. Because I run a, a Bay Area Swallowing Support Group. It's been a great experience in the, the support group just to watch like other uh, members with dysphagia, what they share and how they helped each other. So one of our members, so she also is a head and neck cancer uh, patient. And then she had radiation. She experienced very severe dry mouth. So that's like very common uh, side effects from dry mouth and uh, from, from uh, radiation and can be really long-term. So she was really frustrated uh, about this dry mouth situation because she she's a PhD and then her husband is also a PhD. So they actually developed this dry mouth recipes a solution to help to eating experience better, just to, you know, lubricate your uh, bolus so that you can swallow better. So before she discovered this recipe, she was like so frustrated eating and swallowing experience. Even though if you do a, a, a feast or MBS on her, it's probably uh, normal or pretty, pretty good. But the experience of eating is just not very happy. And then once she found this recipe, she was so happy. And then every time she came to our support group, she will just like share a recipe with other people. Um, and then because, yeah, we have this platform. And then she also used this group use this platform to reach out to other groups, you know, introduce her to other groups. And then, so she got to like engage and that's the participation piece. So she felt like now she, from like a head neck cancer survivor, always uh, receive care. And now she becomes the one that can empower other people and can help other people. So yeah, this is like, this is really cool to see like how she become like really excited about this recipe and then share with other people. And this happens a lot with other members too, because when they share like a one thing that worked for them and then the other people will say, oh yeah, we'll try that. And then they just feel 
like, you know, they are supporting other people too. At the same time, they get, they're getting support. And then this is also, I think support group is just so amazing because they're, they're totally not addressing the impairment uh, domain there. We are not like treating patients in the support group, but we are addressing all the other domains because you are really connecting people together and then they get to feel like that involvement, feel that participation. And then they feel like they are understood by other people that have the same experience. And also they feel like they are probably that their personal factors are also there. They feel less embarrassed. They feel less frustrated because they know that other people experience the same thing and they can probably get some good support or resources from the group. And then also another thing that came up from the support group I wanted to share is that we also have an amazing volunteer group. It's supporting our support group. So this all came from one member. Actually, she's a caregiver of her father. So she reached out to us uh, when we just started the, the support group. She reached out to us, says, I really wish that this support group was there when my father was experiencing all the dysphagia um, issues. Her father passed away. But she was telling me that her father had multiple admissions to hospital because of the pneumonia and because of the dysphagia. And every time her father was in the hospital, there's like dysphagia treatment, which is great. But then every time after the father discharged home, they had nothing and they did not know where to get help, where to go, what kind of things that they could do. So it's just basically there's like disconnection after they discharged home and then they just, you know, feel like hopeless. And then she shared with me that her father always say that though he felt so lonely because he felt like he was the only person that was dysphagia. Nobody in the family has issues. And then he wished that he could have more resources or like a group of people that can share with share information or just support with him. So after talking to her, we decided, okay, why not we start uh, like a project to address these concerns? Because we, we have just heard uh, this is not just for, from one patient, probably from a lot of patients. So we talked to our other members and then they all shared similar thoughts. You just feel like, okay, when they're in the treatment, they got everything after they discharged. They have no idea where to get connected, where to go and not sure where to find resources. So me and my co-facilitator, uh, Claire, we just feel like, you know, Maybe we could do something more. This is like, you know, really true uh, feelings from our members. So we decided, okay, let's maybe do some uh, campaign to like raise a, uh, a dysphagia awareness. So we recruit a group of volunteers. Um, they're mostly uh, grad students and CFs that they're really passionate and wanted to help uh, people help the community. So we recruit them to do some uh, community outreach and then design some materials so that we can share with patients or even SLPs, because we know that, you know, especially the SLP in the inpatient setting, sometimes they are so busy and then they can't really make their materials. So we just think about, you know, why not we make this materials and then hand it to them. And so that when patients are discharged from the hospital, you can just hand these like piece of uh, flyers with all the resources that they can go to. If they don't know, they can join our support group. They can go to the National uh, Foundation of Swollen Disorders. And, you know, there's a lot of resources, but if you don't give it to them, they don't know. So that's why we, this amazing volunteer team is developing these resources and doing the community outreach so that we really hope that this is just one project we just started. And then we really hope that, you know, as the support group goes, we can, we will listen to more of our patients feedback and 
and then that help us just to guide us to the next project because there's probably a lot of things we could do but let's do it one by one and yeah we're also hoping to like send out some surveys to uh, SLPs just to get their thoughts on you know what is the practice pattern or barriers for them to provide a whole person support to uh, patients with dysphagia. So yeah, so that's what we've been doing with our support group. Yeah, I think what's so fascinating is, you know, I think sometimes people think, oh, support group, like it's just, you know, people that get together and sort of talk about their issues. And that's the truth. But there's so much more to it. And it's so it's so rich, I want to say. And it's so rich in the connection and the community that these patients are, are rewarded with, but also for us as clinicians. And I always thought, you know, why would a clinician or why would an SLP want to go to this? But we learn so much about what the missing pieces are for our patients. And, and especially like you said, in some ge- geographic regions, or if you're in, in a really rural area, you, you understand, okay, now I see what these patients are missing. Now here's the huge disconnect. Like you said, they're discharged home. They have no help. Nobody to call. And, and that was my experience with my son being discharged from the NICU. They just kept saying, you'll, you'll, once you go home, you'll figure it out. Once you go home, you'll get help. And it was like, we got home and I was like, I have no idea who to call now. I have no idea what to do with my child that is not eating. Like, and, and I think, you know, sometimes we just, we get that, we get in that pattern of saying that, like, don't worry, you'll get that help at the next level of care. And we just assume the next level of care is is present and available and accessible to everyone. And in a lot of situations, it, it isn't. So I think if you can get involved in support groups just to understand really what the missing pieces are in, in your community. And I think a lot of times SLPs are like, I wish I could do more for my community. Go hear from the people that are experienced in knowing what is missing from your community. And then then you'll know what what needs to be built and how you can really contribute on a much grander scale. And I know I might be out of line in saying this, but I know there's a lot of people that are trying to get the board certification and swallowing and they keep getting denied because they, they're they're being told, you know, you're not doing enough community activities. This would be a community activity. <laughs> go go find what your community needs. Go talk to patients that are needing these services and how can you help and serve them in that way? Exactly. And even just if you don't start your own support group, you can support people with this vision in many different ways. And you can probably volunteer for a support group or something or you know, there's like all kinds of ways for you to contribute to the community and just, you know, raise awareness of dysphagia. I think you had an episode with Gabby about dysphagia awareness. It's just, you know, we we need to do so much work because the awareness of dysphagia is just very low. Like a lot of people just in the community, they don't even, they've never heard of dysphagia, never know that there can be something wrong with swallowing. So there's a lot of work we we still need to do. For sure. And I think in, uh, as clinicians engaging in like community, uh, you know, raising awareness uh, in community and also just support in the support group or attend support group with your patient sometimes can be helpful too. So yeah, so there's just a lot of things we as a speech pathologists can do. Yeah. So let's, let's talk a little bit more about, you know, how, how you use a lot of these tools in your actual workplace, Teresa. So you have the support group, but then you also use a lot of patient reported outcome measures, you're part of a multidisciplinary team. Like I just, I love this whole big picture approach because I think sometimes we just get so lost in the weeds of being on our own little SLP island. And, and I love this big picture approach that that you really advocate for. Yeah. So I'm so fortunate that I'm in, at the big institution and we have very comprehensive team approach to treat patients with head and neck cancer. And it's also same for like other different populations, but just for my own experience, 
it's really cool that you and other providers are in the same building or even the same floor. And then when people, when patients come in, they can see all providers at once. So we usually work closely with our surgeon, our medical oncologist, our radiation oncologist, our dietitian, social workers. Basically, sometimes if you need some help, you just, you know, go to the next room and then just, you know, ask the surgeon to stop by and then check the the patients. And then also sometimes, yeah, if you have any questions about nutrition, you can just, yeah, ask the, the, the dietitian to help and chime in. It's like, you know, sometimes you can just basically help patient within one day. And some of our patients travel really far to our clinic. So we always, always wanted to like coordinate visits so that it's just easier for them during the travel. So this, I think this approach has been really wonderful and our patient really liked it. So it's probably not possible for some of the, the community hospitals or clinic because they don't have this com- comprehensive approach. But my suggestion is if you can, you know, find someone who you, you can just message or email to or connect with, you know, like the who to refer to, even though they're not within your institution. But if you know, if there's a SLP that specialized in head and neck cancer or specialized in uh, ALS or, you know, AAC, you can just gather their information so that you can create your own multidisciplinary team. And sometimes, you know, we um, sometimes send our patients to other institutions that closer to home to get treatment to. And then we will also make sure that we connect with SLPs that locally so that they can take care of the patients uh, throughout the, the treatment. And sometimes we, even the patients are not our patients anymore when they go home and we are still trying to like connect them, make sure that they are uh, set up with some, with the local resources and, and providers that can help them. This is our model here. And then regarding the assessment that we use to really learn more about their, not just impairment, but quality of life, there are a lot of uh, tools that we use. The, the one that we use most frequently is MD Anderson Dysphagia Inventory. And I think you probably heard of, it's just a very cool tool that address not just impairment, but also their emotional domain, functional domain, and just like and then also they have a, one question about the global, just to see overall how the, the dysphagia impacts your quality of life. And this is designed for head and neck cancer patients initially. But I think as a tool for yourself, you can use those questions. You can adapt it to different populations using it just as a guide for you to talk to um, interview the patient. Uh, another very good quality of life centered uh, questionnaire is swallowing quality of life questionnaire, SWOQO. We don't really use a lot in our clinic, but I think it's a great tool if you wanted to use, know more about the quality of life uh, of your patients with dysphagia. And then they also have a version for caregiver. I think these are all good tools to use, even if you're not, not sometimes people will say, oh, don't, I don't have time or the patient doesn't have time to fill it out. You can just select a couple questions and then you just ask them in your interview because, yeah, you wanted to just hear, like, how does the dysphagia impact impacting your social? Do you feel embarrassed? You know, things like that. You can just ask without just filling out the whole questionnaire because those are here as a tool. It's how you use it that matters. So those are the things that we usually um, use. One thing that we also use uh, a lot to uh, assess the head neck cancer patients' uh, public eating is the performance status scale of uh, head neck cancer, so PSSHN. And that is a tool, it's just, it has like the diets that you 
currently on, like, you know, what kind of food you can eat. So there's different scores. And then also one question is about what's your uh, current public eating situation? Are you always eating alone? Are you eating with friends or just selected friends or family? Or are you going out to the restaurant, but you have to like have some restrictions or you can just go out without any restrictions? Just evaluating patients with these tools can really give you a whole picture of where they're at, uh, not just impairment uh, domain, but also other parts of the quality of life. So these are the things that we typically try to use for every patient when we are seeing them every time. Yeah. This has been great. I I just, I love this so much. Anything else we didn't cover? Any final thoughts? Um, I think we covered a lot already, but I just wanted to say, you know, not everyone uh, wants to work on the diet advancement because that's like what we think, oh, as a speech pathologist, as a swallowing specialist, we wanted to work on diet advancement or treat the deficits. We can always help them in different ways, even though we're not working on diet. That may not be the patient's goal. And I think we always wanted to remember that, you know, ask the patient what matters to them and what not, just just not what matters to us, because we don't want to like, you know, treat patients based on our preference. We want to treat patients based on their preference. I remember you asked me about some papers that influenced my practice before, and I told you like there's just so many, but recently I think there are two papers that I feel like every dysphagia clinician, if you're treating dysphagia and you wanted to really look at dysphagia in a different perspective, the whole person approach, you should read. One is from uh, uh, Dr. Threads, the one that I mentioned earlier, the quotes, the use of the ICF in dysphagia management. And that's one that really outlined the whole framework of like, you know, just using ICF and how to address dysphagia management. And then another one is from Dr. Rebecca Nunn from uh, Australia. And then this one, application of the International Classification of Functioning Disability and Health, ICF, to people with dysphagia following non-surgical head and neck cancer. This is a qualitative study. And because before I always like to read like, you know, the quantitative ones, you just so cool to see those numbers and I'm a number person. When I start reading this uh, qualitative study, it just feels like so good to just read the patient's response. Because you will see like when they're interviewing patients, they will have the quotes from the patient and it just, it's totally different from like reading a paper that just, you know, have numbers. Those are good too. But I think these two papers just, you know, really bring you to like this whole person approach and then think about, you know, what matters to patients, what patients that their complaints are. Because it's probably good to know that, you know, there's like impairment um, based approach and then you can change their dysphagia with different treatment. But how about like from the person's perspective? And then these papers really, I think if you read it, you will see like what the patient said, and then you probably never realize that's that important to them. I've gotten really involved in doing qualitative research in my, I'm doing my PhD right now. And I, I didn't realize like how rich it really was. And I've said to a few of my mentors, like, is qualitative research like cool? Like, it seems like you don't hear of it much. (laughs) Everything is just like, biostats and epidemiology and, and, and that stuff gets me excited too. But I'm like, this is so fascinating learning about the, the patient perspective or like the clinician perspective or how we've gotten somewhere. And, and 
the mentors I've had are like, it's super incredible data. Just not a lot of people do it as far as qualitative with dysphagia. So that's something that I I had no idea was really something that I'm really passionate about. And I'm really hoping to do do a lot more work in that area as I, as I continue. That's great. But I'm so glad you brought that up because I, I think there's so much that we can learn as clinicians from qualitative research. And and if there's anybody out there wanting to do some more in dysphagia, I think there's a massive need for it. So that's, yeah, actually I am planning on doing uh, some qualitative research uh, yeah. in dysphagia. So it's, yes, just, just an idea right now, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, exactly. Like you said, you know, you never know. Cause I think just in grad school and, you know, always like you, if you go to conference, it's just, always you see like the data from like randomized control trial and you know some quantitative research those are great but we just don't have enough uh research just really focus on the patients and their perspective i worked uh with a patient with aphasia before and then i saw a lot of those good uh qualitative research aphasia and that's why um they have this uh, life participation approach which is a really huge thing in aphasia treatment and that's why i feel like you know yeah it's we definitely need more qualitative research in also the dysphagia area So yeah, I also, I really hope that we can see more. Yeah. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Tracy. You've just been a a wealth of knowledge and I love where your passions lie and all those things. Like I said, I loved hearing you talk at ASHA. So thank you. Thank you so much for coming on and sharing with everybody. Yeah. Thank you for inviting me. It's great. Yeah. And that's a wrap for this episode. As always, thank you so much for listening. And if you'd like to download the show notes from this episode, please visit swallowyourpridepodcast.com. There you can also sign up for our email list so that you'll never miss another episode. If you do like what you hear, then please subscribe and leave a review on iTunes or share it on social media with your friends and colleagues because that is what keeps these episodes coming. If you'd like to be a guest, share feedback, or request a topic to be discussed on the show, please email podcast at TeresaRichard.com. Thank you so much for listening, and we'll catch you next week.